We do appreciate the presence of each one today. I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel of John this morning, the Gospel of John. Uh, while I'm thinking about it, uh, this is the fifth Sunday in the month of April. And as you know, for some time we've been on those fifth Sunday nights uh, having a guest come and speak for us, and we have one planned for tonight. A name you might be familiar with, Tyler Crawford. Tyler's going to come and he's going to preach for us tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Of course, Tyler and his family were members here for several years. They live down in Auburn now. I believe there's some illness in the family. Uh, at least there was yesterday, so it may not be that the whole family can be here. But Tyler will be here. At least some of his children, I think, plan to be with him. And uh, if you know Tyler, uh, you're, you're, you're probably as excited as I am uh, for him to be here and to hear him speak tonight. So just keep that in mind. We're looking forward to that. Here's our passage for today, John the 15th chapter. We're going to read the first six verses. They say, I am the true vine. Of course, Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's our, our passage. We're going to draw from this passage some, I hope, some good and strong lessons for us to think about and to incorporate into our own lives. Of course, this is one of those I am statements found in the book of John. I'm the light of, of the world. I am the good shepherd. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And here, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Growing, growing vineyards or growing vines has a long history in Israel, really in the Bible, even going back before Israel was, uh, was founded as the descendants of Abraham. But I remember when Noah comes out of the ark, he plants a vineyard. That doesn't turn out too well for Noah. He drinks from the wine that uh, he made from the grapes from the vineyard. He became drunk and bad things happened after that. During the period of wandering, as the people are head, making their way to the promised land, the law of Moses anticipates them growing vineyards and producing, uh, producing grapes from those vineyards. They were not to sow two kinds of seed in the vineyard. Deuteronomy 22 verse 9 says, If you pass through a neighbor's vineyard, you could pluck his grapes, you could pick some grapes and eat them, but you couldn't carry a basket with you and put grapes in the basket and carry them back home. That's a paraphrase, of course, from Deuteronomy 23 and verse 24. You are not to reap your vineyards twice. And so you go through at harvest time, you reap the grapes, but don't go back over them because those were to be left for the poor people in the land. And so they would have an opportunity to go and, and gather grapes themselves and uh, have the benefit of, of that. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 11, Moses says, When you go into the land, you're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. And so the law anticipates vineyards being very common in Israel. And one of the famous passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah compares the relationship of God with his people 
to a, vine, a vineyard, a vine dresser, who plants a vineyard and builds a wine vat and so forth. And so the relationship that the vineyard owner has with his vineyard is like the relationship that God has with his people. Jesus has a tendency in his teaching to just draw from common everyday uh, occasions and events. A sower went forth to sow. And if, if, if the people there were not sowers themselves, they had seen others out sowing the seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that's thrown into the lake and all sorts of fishes are brought in. So Jesus just chooses these very common everyday uh, events or occasions to make powerful lessons. And he does that here as well. Vineyards were very common in Israel. There are lots of them all around, all over the countryside. And, and Jesus uses vine vineyards and vine growers or vineyard growers to teach a lesson. The, he tells a parable about what I've called uh, the 11th hour wages. You remember those who worked only one hour, they went out the 11th hour, the 12th hour, they were paid their wage, and they received the same amount of wage as those who had worked all day. Well, they went working in the vineyard. The parable of the two sons, father calls his sons to go work in the vineyard, and one says, I'm not going to go, and then later repents himself and went, and the other one said, well, I'll go, but never does. Which one of them was acceptable to the father? Again, the idea of working in the vineyard is used by Jesus. In the passage before us, Jesus uses the image of a vineyard again. This time, choosing an individual vine with the branches that come off the vine and then bear the grapes. Very much like we see in our, our picture here. So Jesus says, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. You are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. So let's spend our time, the time that we have left this morning, talking about our relationship to God through Christ being like a vine and the branches that produce the fruit. Well, the fact that Jesus suggests that he is the true vine implies that there are false vines out there. I am the true vine, he says. The very first statement in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. And so there are false vines. The true vine would be the source of life for the branches, the source of nourishment from the branches. And so Jesus says, I am the genuine source of spiritual life. I am the true source of spiritual nourishment. You must be connected to me. A branch must be connected to the vine in order to benefit from the life and the nourishment that comes through the vine. Now Jesus expresses this idea in other places as well. For example, if you go back to John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, Jesus says, I'm the bread that has come down out of heaven. And if you eat of me, well then, of course, you'll receive the benefit from that. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there's the idea again. I'm the bread that's come down out of heaven. You eat from me, you're going to live. You're going to de derive spiritual strength and nourishment and, 
and well-being from that relationship with me. And so that's the idea here in John 15. I'm the true vine. You're the branch. You receive your nourishment from me. You receive your life from me. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 4, John says, In him was life. And so life, life is in the branch. Life is in Christ. He is the true source of life, the genuine source of spiritual life. Now, as we said a moment ago, that would imply to us that there are false vines out there. If he's the true vine, well, then there must be false vines. In Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is describing the events to come and the destruction of Jerusalem, he says to them in verse 23, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. In Acts chapter 5, or rather Acts chapter, yeah, Acts chapter 5, you might remember that Gamaliel uh, identifies a couple of these men by name. And so they're trying to decide, the Sanhedrin's trying to decide what to do with the apostles. They're out there teaching in the name of Christ. Remember, Gamaliel said, now there's been a couple of other people like this before. One's name was Thutis and one's name was Judas. And you remember, they, they went out, they went preaching, they gained a following for a while, and then their movement eventually just, just fizzled out. And so he said, my advice is leave these men alone. If what they're doing is from God, we can't stop it anyway. If it's from men, it's, it's just going to fade away. And so there have been false Christs all along. There have been men who falsely claim to be the source of spiritual nourishment and spiritual life. There are false vines today, aren't there? Any, anyone who claims to be the source of spiritual life other than Christ is a false vine. Muhammad is a false vine, isn't he? He claims to be the source of spiritual insight and spiritual life, but it's a false claim. Humanistic, modernistic, naturalistic thought that's a false vine, isn't it? And so anybody, and they're, they're, people are approaching this from an atheistic point of view, just do what fulfills you. Do what you like. And that will give meaning and well-being to your life and so forth. That, that's, a, that's a false vine, isn't it? We don't derive spiritual life and nourishment and well-being by denying the existence of God. The construction in this statement and statements like it, these I am statements suggest to us that, there, that Jesus is speaking exclusively. I am the vine. Really the emphasis is on that first part. I, I am the vine. Almost as if he were saying, I and I alone am the vine. In fact, in verse 5 he says, apart from me you can do nothing. And so, one of the th th points we want to make, and one of the things we want to be impressed with here, is that Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of spiritual strength. Jesus is the source of spiritual nourishment and well-being. And there is none other. He and He alone. There is none other. A second point to draw out is that the branches must abide in the vine in order to produce fruit. Look at, again, chapter 15 of John, the first part of chapter, uh, verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And so we must abide in him and he must abide in us if we're going to do what the vine dresser intends for us to do. Why would a man plant a vineyard? Why, why, why would he plant grapevines? Well, he wants the vines to produce some grapes. <laughs> They're not much good if they don't produce grapes, are they? And, and so that's the whole purpose for God having his, his vineyard in order for his vines to produce grapes. And so how do we produce fruit? By abiding in the vine. If we are the branches, we abide in the vine, and that's where we receive our strength and nourishment so that we can produce fruit as our Father, the vine dresser, wants us to do. And so Jesus tells us here that we must be connected to Him. That's the relationship that's being conveyed by the image here. You have to be connected to Christ. We have to live under His influence. We have to receive instruction and direction from Him. We must live a life that's shaped and controlled by Him. You know, when you look at a, and I'm not a, I'm not a vine grower or grape grower, but some here might be. But if you look at the, the vine and the branches, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell where one starts and the other one stops. <laughs> and so it should be with us. We should be so connected, so interconnected with Christ, that in a sense, it's hard to tell where Christ in us stops and we start. We're, we're so connected and so united with Him. Now those are the words of Paul, to be united with Him. Paul speaks about being in Christ and being with Christ. And so in verse 4 of this particular passage, Jesus says that we must, that you must abide in me and I in you. Paul speaks about being in Christ as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Just think about that. Being in Christ, an idea that's very common, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Being in, being in Christ. And Jesus says, you must abide in me. In uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Paul uses this expression to be in Christ, but also to be with Christ. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Can you see what's going on in the life of Christ ought to be duplicated in the life of His disciple? Jesus died, was buried, was raised to walk in a new life. We are with Him. We are buried with Him. And then we also are raised to walk in a new kind of life. That's that connection between disciple and Christ. He says in verse 5 of Romans chapter 3, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 is another interesting expression. Paul's talking about his work as a preacher of the gospel and how he can bring to light to, the, uh, to, to those who are lost the gospel so that they might become saints. In verse 26, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of His mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's our hope? Well, Christ is in us. 
We are in Him. He is in us. We are with Him. He's with us. We are united to Him. And then Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19 says, My children, with whom I again in labor until Christ is formed in you. So look at all these expressions. You must abide in me. I must abide in you. You must be in me. I'm in you. I'm united. We're, you, you're united with me. You're with me. I'm formed in you. Christ is in you. That's the connection that must exist if we want to bear fruit. You see, a, a branch separated from the vine, a branch that is not in the vine, cannot bear fruit. We're not going to bear fruit if we're not in Christ, with Christ, unless He's formed in us, unless He is in us. So how do we do that? How do we live a life that's in Christ? Well, we keep His Word. John 15, verse 3, You are already clean because of the Word that I've spoken to you. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. How do we abide in Him? Notice the sort of continuing nature of that. We are abiding in Him. How do we do that? By walking in His Word, by keeping His Word, by putting into practice His teaching. That raises the question then, what, what did Jesus teach? Well, let's just think about a few things. We could spend multiple lessons on this. The first thing he taught is your attitude's got to be right. If you listen to the podcast, we've been talking about that. Kevin and I have been talking about that as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. The very first thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is say, you got to get your attitude right. The very first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we're going to abide in Christ by keeping His Word, we've got to get our attitude right first. It's got to be the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ, living and dwelling in us. Jesus tells us to love all men, even our enemies. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But even go beyond that, love your enemies, Jesus says. Pray for them, do good for them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus sets the standard for us on this, doesn't He? That He loves His enemies. If we're going to abide in Him and He and us, within well, that same kind of love has to have its place in our lives, in our attitude. Love not just your friends. Love your enemies as well and do good for them. Jesus teaches us we cannot be right with God if we're not right with our brethren. Matthew chapter 5, if you're offering your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, you go and leave your offering there and go first and be reconciled to your brother. Can't be right with God if you're not right with your, with you, with your brother. That's the teaching of Jesus. And if we're going to abide in Him and He in us, within, well we need to practice that. Be willing to forgive. It's interesting that the only thing in 
Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, out of all the things he says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. The only statement he comments on is about forgiveness. If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, he won't forgive you. That's the teaching of Jesus. We, we have to learn to forgive. We're going to abide in the vine, and the vine is going to abide in us. We do that by keeping His teaching. Well, we have to learn to forgive. He also exposed religious hypocrisy. <laughs> now, don't do, don't do your works of righteousness to be seen of men. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. And He also says, unless you repent, you'll perish. That's also... The teaching of Jesus. We have to learn all of that and practice all of those things. And so, abiding in Christ cannot be determined by a feeling of closeness or connection with Him. We must keep His Word. Um, I fear that there are lots and lots of people who think they're abiding in Christ because they feel close to Christ. I, I, I just feel like I've got a good relationship with Him. But that's not the test, is it? The test is, am I keeping His Word? And so, to abide in Him... We keep His Word. And if we keep His Word, we're going to bear fruit. Again, what good is having a vine if it doesn't bear fruit? And so God expects us to bear fruit. And we bear fruit, of course, by keeping His Word. If we keep His Word, we're going to bear fruit. Now we're going to do that in different ways, I suppose, or maybe multiple ways. We might bring others into the kingdom of God and we bear fruit that way. We go out and we teach others and we bring them in. That would be one way to, to bear fruit. We might help others grow and develop themselves. And so we work with and teach and encourage others. And as we see their growth and maturity, that's one way we might bear fruit. Or we might bear fruit even in our own lives as we grow and mature ourselves. You remember Galatians chapter 5 discusses the fruit of the Spirit. And those are qualities that we develop in ourselves. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And as we grow and develop in those areas, well then we're bearing fruit, aren't we? And so the question is, are you bearing any fruit? Now, if not, why not? Maybe we're not as connected to the vine as we need to be. Maybe Christ is not in us the way He ought to be, or we in Him the way we ought to be. Maybe we're not keeping His Word the way we ought to be. But if we abide in Him and keep His Word, we are going to bear fruit in one way or other, maybe in, in different ways. And so we need to take a look at our lives, make an evaluation are we bearing fruit for ourselves or others? If not, well, we need to remedy the situation as quickly as possible because the next point is, if branches do not produce fruit, they're cut off and burned. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. First of all, he talks about being pruned. Now, any, any fruit tree grower, 
any vine grower understands that process. Like I said, I'm not a fruit tree grower, but I still think I understand at least the principle involved. You want your fruit tree or your vine, in this case, to be as productive as possible. And so you're going to cut away anything in that vine. You're going to cut away anything that hinders the uh, ultimate production, the very highest level of production possible in, in that branch. And so if there's something in the vine or something in the branch that's going to hinder that, you want to cut it away. You want to get rid of it. You want to prune it. Now that process might be painful to the branch or to the, to the vine, but in the long run, it's worth it because it produces more and better quality fruit. That's what God does with us. He's going to try to cut away from us anything that hinders our growth and development in, in the Lord, anything that would hinder the production, production of spiritual fruit in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 talks about the discipline of the Lord. And he says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so, just as when you have a child and they misbehave, you want to cut out, any, you know, cut out anything that's going to distract from or hinder the development of you know, right behavior. So the Lord does with us. Anything that would get in the way of us being as productive spiritually as possible, He's going to try to discipline us and, and cut that away. It may be <laughs> that you've experienced that in your life. But you can look back at your life, or maybe, maybe not in the not too, in the not too distant past, and say, you know, I had this in my life. It was hurting me. It was hindering me. I wasn't able really to become the Christian I needed to be as long as I was involved in that and thinking about that. And I appreciate the Lord helping me get that out of my life. And so it may be that you experience that in your own life, or it might be that we just need to ask ourselves, what's hindering me now? What is hindering me now from being as mature and productive as a Christian as I can be? If there are things, okay, we need to get rid of them, prune those away so that we can reach our full potential. If we don't produce fruit, those who are not growing, not developing, not helping others spiritually, not bringing others to Christ, as we've seen, will be cut off and burned. Well, that message seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Those disciples who don't abide in Christ and keep His Word will be punished eternally in, in hell. The, the New Testament teaches that God has, placed, has prepared a place of punishment for those who disobey. The English word we use is the word hell. It's based on the uh, word Gehenna, which recalls the valley of Hinnom, a valley outside of, of Jerusalem, which at one time was a place of child sacrifice. Eventually became the garbage dump of the city, the Valley of Hinnom, the garbage dump of the city. And so just think about the people in, the residents of Jerusalem bringing their garbage, their rotten food, their dead animals, throwing it into the garbage dump. What a nasty, terrible place that must have been. The smoldering fire, you know, we had one of those in the Birmingham area not long ago, this smoldering fire that just continually burned. 
And that's, that's kind of the real-life image of eternal punishment. We don't think about Jesus as talking a lot about hell, but did you know that Jesus discusses hell more than anybody else in the New Testament? <laughs> this word, Gehenna, hell, it occurs only 12 times in the New Testament. 11 times come from the mouth of Jesus. The one other time is from James, where he's talking about the, the problem we have with our tongue, with, with speech. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, If you're angry with your brother and you insult him, you're in danger of the hell of fire. He says in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, <coughs> It would be better for you to cut off your hand and enter into life with only one hand than having two hands to spend eternity in hell. In Matthew 23 and verse 33, he asked the hypocrites, How do you think you're going to escape? hell. The word may not be used by others, but the idea of eternal punishment is certainly throughout the New Testament. Romans chapter 2 is a passage that comes to mind. Paul says that God will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. God gives those people eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And then if you turn over to 2 Thessalonians and look at chapter 1, see another reference, another allusion to eternal, the eternal destruction that comes from the Lord. He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. Jesus Himself doesn't always use the word hell when describing eternal punishment. The unprofitable servant is cast into outer darkness, Matthew 25 and verse 30. And the unmerciful goat, you remember, the Lord separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, the goats are unmerciful, they show no compassion, they don't feed the hungry or clothe the poor or visit people in prison or sick. And Jesus says of them, they will go into the eternal fire, eternal punishment. And so what Jesus is saying here is, if His disciples, the branches, do not keep His word, do not abide in Him, do not produce fruit, they will be cut off from the vine and burned. They'll suffer eternal punishment in hell. There's no need for that. <laughs> There's no need for that for anybody here. You see, we have the information, we're forewarned, we understand. We need to abide in Christ. He's the source of life. He's the source of nourishment. We abide in Him by keeping His Word, by putting His teaching into practice, by growing personally, by helping others to grow, by bringing others in. And as long as we abide in Him and He in us, and as long as we keep His Word, well then, that's going to be the result. What good is a branch on a grapevine that doesn't bear any fruit? Ultimately, it'll be cut away into the burn pile, and we don't want that. Wonderful lesson here, Jesus the vine, we're the branches, but it places upon us these responsibilities, makes to us wonderful promises. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to study from your word. We're thankful, Father, that 
We have access to your word that has been preserved for us, that we can read it, we can study it, we can understand what we need to do to be right in your sight. Help us, Father, to determine to eliminate anything in our lives that would hinder our spiritual growth and development, that would hinder our close relationship with the Lord. Help us to see those things clearly. Help us to have the will and the determination to eliminate them. Help us, Father, to grow and develop and thrive as a healthy branch abiding in the vine. Help us, Father, to, to produce fruit by bringing others into the kingdom, by helping others grow and develop, and by growing and develop the qualities, the fruit of the Spirit, ourselves. Help us to understand, Father, that we are responsible for, for that, responsible for our own growth and development. Help us, Father, to avoid the fate of those who are unproductive. Help us to avoid being cut off, thrown away, and burned in the fire. Father, we want to commit ourselves to you and devote ourselves to you today and each day as we live our lives in prospect of that great day of judgment and eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.